Everybody, everybody loves sports. And so today we're speaking about customer experience, fan experience, and the business of sports. Welcome to episode number 305 of CXO Talk, and I'm thrilled to welcome Jonathan Becker, who is the president of the San Jose Sharks organization. Before we begin, subscribe on YouTube. Please do that. I've known Jonathan Becker for years, and so it really is a pleasure to welcome him back to CXO Talk. Hey, Jonathan, how are you? And welcome back to CXO Talk. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Episode 305. Congratulations. That's a great and long run. You know, it's, it's a long run, and it's the guests on CXO Talk who make it. So, uh, Jonathan, tell us about the Sharks. So, first of all, I'll start with an interesting point, which is I'm president of Shark Sports and Entertainment. Funny phrase, but the point is Shark Sports and Entertainment is the parent of the National Hockey League's San Jose Sharks, which is what you normally think about when you think of the word Sharks, plus the American Hockey League's San Jose Barracuda, plus four ice facilities, an event management business that hosts, I don't know, something like 175 events per year, including concerts and family shows, and finally a nonprofit foundation. So when we talk about sharks, sometimes we're talking about the overall organization and sometimes about the hockey team. These are really multiple businesses that, that you're running. That's exactly right. These are, you can't really call them independent businesses because in our big building, actually, which is named the SAP Center, which has a little bit to do with my history. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit as well. Um, the San Jose Sharks, the San Jose Barracuda, and the concerts are in that building at the same time. But they're individual P&Ls, profit and loss statements, and they don't always have the same customers. So because somebody who comes to a Sharks game may not be the same person that goes to a rock concert or a Hispanic show or Latino music, et cetera. So you have to treat them as individual, even though they're interconnected. And as the president of this organization with uh, multiple components, what do you do? What is your role? Yeah, so slightly complicated, but I'll make it pretty simple, which is if I look across this end to end, there's really sort of three leaders. So you can call it a triumvirate if you want. Myself and my actually have a co-president, which is a long tradition uh, in technology. You may remember we had uh, co-CEOs at SAP for a while as well. Um, we're responsible for the business operations of the franchise, and there's a general manager for hockey. For hockey, think coaches and players. On the specific things, I tend to focus more on fan engagement, on sales, on marketing, on PR, on analytics and other infrastructural stuff. And my co tends to be, I don't know, the phrase might be back office, but on event management, on the building operations, et cetera. But none of the three of us divide this up into pieces. Think of this as kind of a major and minor in college. I might major in the customer-focused stuff. He minors in it, and he might major in the building operations, and I minor it. Or if you want to be slightly more sexy about it, we can call it yin and yang as opposed to major and minor. Jonathan, we're going to dive more into this. But before we do, as I said, I've known you for, for many years, and you were a technology executive. You founded a number of different companies. You were a top executive at SAP. And so why did you decide, first off, to jump over to the sports world from, from technology? You know, I guess it's easy to put the label on me as technology executive. After all, as you said, I was a CEO and a senior exec at technology companies. But I never really thought myself as a technology executive. What I thought of myself as an executive who is customer focused. 
a lot of what I did, particularly over the last decade, was to work on technologies and processes that engage customers. I mean, these days, what would be called customer experience or customer engagement, although frankly, it wasn't called that for an entire decade. So that function is not fundamentally different often among industries. Having said that, I mean, look, I did work at a technology company and now I work at a sports and entertainment company. And I think if you go back and find the roots, the roots of that change actually happened when I was the chief marketing officer of SAP, probably, I don't know, around about seven years ago. And uh, there were two sort of issues, you could almost call them problems that I was thinking about. One is, because I have an analytics background, we're trying to think about how to expand analytics from beyond large companies to small and medium-sized businesses. The challenge is small and medium-sized businesses are often family-owned and managers there use their gut much more than they use data. And so we were trying to find ways to break through that bias that gut is more accurate and better than data. And then the second challenge I was working on is SAP wanted to expand its brand from purely B2B, business to business, to B2B2C, meaning have an impact on consumers. And one day it just sort of hit me that those two problems were the same problem. And that if we could find a way to show viscerally that data and emotionally was better than your gut, we could solve both problems. And sports was a natural way to do that. So we ran a series of video and digital ads that talked about, for example, a pitcher coming in in late innings in baseball, pitching on maybe one day's rest and a cold weather to a lefty, et cetera. And your gut would tell you, you know, he's going to strike him out. But in reality, there was a home run and compare what the data would predict about your gut to what actually happened. And amusingly, and frankly, unexpectedly, the best things happened unexpectedly, that led to us starting a sports line of business when I was at SAP, which I helped launch. And we ended up doing these technology deals with the NBA, with the NFL, et cetera. I won't say culminating, but one of the big steps there is uh, I negotiated the naming rights for the building that I'm now in, uh, changing it for what was once called the HP Pavilion to now the SAP Center. So that got me really deeply involved in the business of sports. Uh, and when I left SAP about uh, a little more than a year ago, a year and a half ago, took some time off, uh, sort of the next natural step was to become an executive focused on customer success in the sports world as well. So the common thread is that what we, what we now call customer experience, that's the point. I would agree, exactly right. Thinking, if you will, outside in from the customer's point of view and how does that change how you run your business Actually, I don't like the phrase, put the customer in the center, because that sort of suggests that you're surrounding them almost in an antagonistic way. It's uh, how do you flip your mindset from internal business process, functionality, operational oriented to externally first, what they need. I mean, if we go back to business books written 20, 30 years ago, it's the modern version of walk a mile in their shoes. I want to remind everybody that, as always, there's a tweet chat taking place right now, and you can ask our guest Jonathan Becker questions using the hashtag CXOTalk. So, Jonathan, when we talk about customer experience in sports, like for the Sharks, what does that mean? What are you referring to? In, in some ways, it's very similar to customer experience in a technology company or a customer experience in a retailer or any other industry. And in some ways, it's fundamentally different. Uh, one of the ways to see that it's nearly identical is just to think about your digital footprint or how you engage socially. Uh, for those of you that know me or have interacted with me before, you know that I'm a social person, both 
frankly, in real life and in the digital world. But everybody, almost every industry has learned that social is less about the media. It's less about a shouting platform. It's less about a way of amplifying your normal marketing or PR and getting out at less cost and more about a listening platform and a way to interact with people and removing layers from the consumer of your product and the producer of your product. And so in sports, like in any other line of business, we spend a lot of time listening to what fans, and there's a distinction between fans and customers, what fans want and what customers want. Some of that is a simple customer service. Uh, they, you know, their digital ticket doesn't work. Can we interact with them? They want a particular jersey, but they can't find it online in a store, or they don't like something that's happening on the ice. That we can do from a service. We use it sometimes to design new products as well, but most of anything, it's authentically engaged. And brand personas of who you are shine through, not just corporate brand personas. You'll see me interacting as a human being, as a person. I actually even describe myself in the digital world as a fan first and the president second. So that part hasn't really changed much. Digital and social techniques are roughly the same similar technology. What is fundamentally different, however, is what does the experience mean? And I'll give you a hint, and if you want more detail, I'll happy to go into it, and that is in the good old days, and I'm never really sure when the good old days were, so let's say 10 years ago, the formula success for a sporting game was pretty simple. If the hometown team won, and maybe if the beer was cold, then the fans left happy. These days, it's a lot more complicated, and things like lines for food, the quality of the food, traffic patterns, et cetera, have almost as much to do as the product itself, meaning the sporting experience. So this, this notion of authentic engagement, that's the, the foundation, and it's really the foundation of a lot of moder modern marketing. And how do you think about conveying that sense of authenticity and being remaining too true to the brand promise that you have as well? So, um, first of all, you have to sort of know what our brand promise is in order for some of this to make sense. We are, we, we think of ourselves and our players actually more than ourselves as hometown heroes. Uh, our players live in the community. They're part of the community. They give back to the community. Our building itself is in some sense, one of the main anchors of downtown San Jose. Uh, we program our building based on who lives near here. We're, I would bet, and I've seen some data that suggests the most ethnically diverse fan base when it comes to both hockey and uh, concerts in general across all of Northern America. So we use that to say, what kind of show should we have and who do we market to? And given that we are the anchor, you know, hometown heroes, that spirit is a big part of our brand identity. And so we look for sometimes what are very simple acts. Uh, you know, our players live next door to regular fans. You can find them in coffee shops, uh, in subway kind of uh, sandwich kind of things, just talking to people. I mean, that's the beauty of actually being here in Silicon Valley is you can rub shoulders with anybody else and just be yourself. So that ethos of be part of the community sticks with us. And just to give you a couple of simple consequences, that means our inexpensive seats are probably some of the best prices in sports. We actually have seats in the building with great sight lines, not up in the rafters, they go for 30 bucks for a game, which is pretty affordable. If you go to our Barracuda experience, you can often get in for $5 and we have uh, $2 beers and $1 hot dogs. So a lot of what we try to do is be part of the community and that's 
part of that, not just social and digital footprint, but in real life footprint as well. So is, is brand promise the foundation or the beginning point of creating authentic customer experience? Yes and no. And the worry, I, the worry, I, sorry, the reason I worry about saying yes is promise suggests something that you may or may not be able to lead up to. And so I tend to use brand identity, who you actually are. It's not a promise of who you want to become, but it's a who we actually are. And so therefore, if it's who we are, it has to impact who we hire, how we train, how we act. So if you were to change your phrase to say is brand identity the core to all this, I'd say 100% agree. I, I think that at least in the software industry, there are a fair number of companies that don't really know who they are. They have a brand aspiration. We want to be great or whatever it is. Yep. They don't really have a clear brand identity. I think that's probably reasonably true as well. And I'm not sure. I mean, in some sense, the brand is a collection of who you actually are. And it can be aspirational. We have an aspirational vision as well. Again, I'll talk less about software companies now, given my new role, than maybe my past ones, but I will draw a parallel here, which is uh, one of the things we did when I showed up here, and I started in January of this year, even if it was announced late last year, is we created a new vision statement, a new mission, and a new set of values. And our vision statement is what I would call big, a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. And our vision statement says, we want to pioneer the future of sports and entertainment. Well, we're not there yet. You can never already be the future of sports and entertainment because no matter when you get there, the future is always further on. But pioneering becomes part of our spirit and part of our brand identity. What does that mean? That means we're constantly going to experiment on things. And I mean, some of those experiments are going to work out and some of those experiments are not going to work out, but that's part of our brand identity. And again, I'll give you a very tactical example. We were one of the first in sports and I think maybe the first in hockey to go to essentially 100% digital tickets. That means you don't get the paper-based tickets anymore, although we do have an option for people to get paper-based tickets if they don't have a smartphone. But in Silicon Valley, that's a small subset of people. Now, because we were first to go to digital tickets, lots of things hadn't been worked out yet. Uh, we still had some challenges with our own application, with third-party infrastructure that we use as well. And frankly, there were some disgruntled fans that said, you don't have this right on opening day. That was last year. But that pioneering spirit said, that's okay to make mistakes. We're sorry that we did that to our fans, but let's learn for those and not make the same mistake twice. So we continue to push on technology. We continue to push on programs because the identity of who we are is we want to be pioneers. And that goes back 27 years to founding the franchise. If you go back 27 years ago, or frankly, 30 years ago, and said, there's going to be a NHL team, an ICE team, in Northern California, that might even seem laughable. This is a land without ice. People don't grow up on a frozen pond playing hockey. No one would have thought that the NHL would do so well in California. And now there are three teams here, one in Northern California and two in Southern California. So that is the kind of pioneering spirit we want to keep. And frankly, that's part of the brand identity. Jonathan, you, you talk about being a pioneer in sports and entertainment. Why that linkage, sports and entertainment? Why not, why not just say, we want to be the best sports team in the world? Yeah, fair enough. Um, well, first of all, best in the world is always a tough thing to do because, you know, we don't play basketball. So we can't be a better basketball team because we're in hockey. But ignoring that for a moment, sports and entertainment are two sides of the same coin. 
you may have heard me say at the beginning, the official name of our organization is Shark Sports and Entertainment. Why? Well, there are a whole bunch of reasons. The simplest reason is because we're not just about hockey. I mentioned we have 175 events in our buildings. Uh, we have concerts, uh, rock concerts, classical concerts, uh, specialty shows, etc. We have uh, family shows, Disney on ice. Uh, we had uh, tractor, uh, a monster truck kind of thing as well. We have convention style events. Uh, Michelle Obama is coming to give a talk in our building as well. So those things are entertainment. They have nothing to do with sports as well. And if you were just simply to look at the number of events, I think last year we did about 175. It's roughly half of them are sports and roughly half of them are not sports. So it's an entertainment. But ignoring that, let's just concentrate even on the hockey half. That, I think in the original days of sports, if we go back 20 or 30 years, was still probably sports and entertainment because it was about exciting the passion in people. It was about entertaining them. It was maybe capital S sports and little e entertainment. But an interesting thing has happened with a new generation of fan coming in with digital changing the way you consume sports as, as well. It's about being entertained. Um, if you come to any sporting franchise, any game, I assume you've seen this in your life as well, Michael, there's more and more things around the game itself to entertain fans. There's more music. There are more distraction and contests, uh, whether those are between periods or in the concourses, et cetera. There are, is more food. Actually, one of the biggest changes in sporting events has become destination for foodies as well. If I just look at our building, it's gone from the old hot dog and hamburger to hundreds of different specialty items and some amazing food, which maybe we should talk about because it'll make us both hungry and want to actually leave this broadcast and actually go eat something. But the point being is these days to put on a successful sporting event, you have to think about the end-to-end -end experience. And the end-to-end -end experience is about entertaining a customer, not putting on a game. As I've spoken with other sports executives, one of the clear themes that emerges is competition. And so who, who, who are your customers and who is your competition? And it's directly related to this point you were just making. So Michael, um, we could probably talk about both of those questions for hours. So, so let, me, let me start with a simplistic way of thinking about it, and then we can go from there. First of all, we, we don't have a simple to identify customer. Um, obviously, a hockey customer is different than a concert customer, which is different than a practice facility customer, which is different, et cetera. We have four major lines of businesses, which have four very different kinds of customers. But even into, inside each of those, the person that goes to a rock concert is different than goes to a classic music. Uh, even within hockey, there's not a single customer. We have extraordinary loyal fans. We have season ticket holders that have been with us since this building opened 25 years ago, even before then when the franchise started 27 years ago. And we have people that have only been with us intermittently during that time period. So what I would say the classic customer segmentation approaches where you have, you know, let's say eight big segments, doesn't really work that well. We're not yet at the point of what marketers would like to call the segment of one, but we're moving in that direction. Instead of us trying to force fit customers into predefined segments based on who we think we are, we flip it around and say, who are they and how can we best serve them based on dozens of business processes and dozens of templates? So it's not putting them into our buckets, it's trying to put us into their buckets. That switch is a psychological change for marketers, salespeople, and operational, 
which we're probably halfway through. You asked the second question, which I'll try to answer quickly as well, is who's our competition? And that's also distinct, uh, difficult to answer, but if we just focus again on hockey, on the Sharks, it's tempting to say that the person on their living room couch watching TV is our primary competition with 4K TV, with digital distribution, you know, the view of the game is almost as good as it is in venue. To be fair, that's happened less in hockey than it has in other sports. Hockey, at least in my opinion, and I know I'm somewhat biased, hockey is a sport that's best appreciated live. The nuances have not yet been captured as well, in my personal opinion, on TV as maybe some other sports, which you have just as good, if not some case, better experience than watching it live. And so what we find is fans don't get hooked as much if they only ever watch on TV. They get hooked with the in-game experience, which is lends to be interesting, which is I actually don't want the entire building, roughly 17,500 sold out with season tickets, because if I do that, I have a limited opportunity to have new fans experience the game. I actually want, let's oversimplify, roughly half or a bit more to be season ticket holders and the rest to be more casual fans that get to experience it so I can touch a lot more people. It's also that I'm not really competing with other sports teams, although I know that's common for my colleagues to say, because I find that people are avid fans of one or two sports at the most, not of five or 10. To me, what I'm mostly competing with is time and attention. The other entertainment dollars, the and games of Fortnite. So people just sit on their couch. To me, it's the attention span of what I'm competing with, which is why it can't just be the hockey game. It has to be all the entertainment and to why it can't just be for the three hours on the game night. It has to be 24 by seven. And so I could imagine that if we fast forward 10 years, we're not sports and entertainment franchises, we're content factories. The, this notion of uh, the need to engage the fans and develop their mind share, yeah. it sounds like a lot of what you're doing is oriented around that ongoing mind share that goes far beyond any specific event. Absolutely right. You know how retailers used to argue and talk about share of wallets? Uh, we're trying to play with the idea of what's share of mind. Although it sounds a bit creepy, so maybe that's the wrong phrase to use. Anybody out there on social media got a better idea, feel free to tweet it out or use whatever method you want. But the how often do you think about us? How often do you talk to your friends, even your competitors, et cetera, about what we're doing? If we're engaged in the conversation, that's great. So how do you, how do, you do this? So I think the first way is to not start with the transaction. Um, you know, I said earlier in this, and maybe you even said it as well, that my primary job might be customer experience. And this market is called CX customer experience. And, I, and I, I'm not sure that's the right way to describe it because customer implies transactional relationship and then immediately asks you to think about lifetime value and all that and start putting commercial parameters around that. Maybe the answer is fan engagement or fan experience. And again, it's not semantics. What I'm trying to get at is in a, a vast majority of situations, we as Shark Sports and Entertainment may never have a commercial relationship from those who care the most passionate about us. A large fraction of our fans, depending on whose numbers you believe, it could be a quarter or even more, don't live in Silicon Valley and so aren't probably going to come to my building very often. Maybe they don't come whatsoever, but they are still passionate about our product offering. 
So how do they show their passion? Will they engage in social media? Perhaps they buy a merchandise. But they buy merchandise, they're probably not buying it for me because they're physically not coming into the store so they could buy it online or maybe in their local retailer. That's not money that I'm involved in. And yet their experience there is important to me as well. So part of what we try to do is create stories around the brand that show who we actually are and who the players are and better yet, allow others to amplify and tell their own stories as well. So two things there. One is, in some sense, and I hope none of them are listening, our players are, in some sense, our product. And what's great about hockey players is they're easily relatable. They aren't a lot bigger than the average human being sometimes, like some sports are. They aren't a lot taller than the average human being. Like they When you meet them, they are like you and I, except for they're a superhuman when it comes to their powers to play hockey. And so helping them tell their own stories becomes much more relatable. We have a, a fantastically outgoing hockey player named Brett Burns, one of the best defensemen, won the Norse Trophy a couple of years ago. Uh, he has this massive ranch down in Texas. And so he invited us down onto his ranch in the off season. We filmed essentially what is kind of an off day sort of segment about his life on the ranch where you see beyond how he is and he plays on the ice, but his interaction with his animals, with his family, et cetera, that showing the authenticity of what's going on sort of gets the stories going. But we also have fans who tell their stories. Uh, there's frankly more people analyzing how our Sharks players are doing that are non-official media than there are official media. Helping their stories get amplified and tell it whether there are bloggers otherwise, helps create what we call everywhere is Sharks territory, not just here in Silicon Valley. So fundamentally, that's the kind of core pillar is creating that ongoing sense of community that's independent of location. That's exactly right. I mean, uh, I said earlier that our part of our brand ethos, our brand identity is hometown heroes. And it's tempting to say, well, the hometown is only San Jose. Yes, it's centered there. But if we can create that passion, that sense of being there everywhere in the world, then we've been done really well. I and mean, frankly, some of our most passionate fans are in the hometowns where some of our players come from, which could be Eastern Europe, Canada, pretty much anywhere in the world. Right now we have uh, five players on the team that are from Sweden. And uh, I'm seeing an awful lot of Swedish tweets in my timeline, which is kind of cool. But still the foundation must be the team and the success of the team in games. For sure, of course. Nothing replaces the fact that people love hockey and they come to watch hockey. And the better you are, the easier it is to, to engage people. But we've been blessed. Uh, and we've made the playoffs 13 in the last 14 years, 18 in the last 20 years. I mean, our, we've been the model of success in hockey and in some sense in sports overall as well. Uh, in the last 15 years, more or less, no team in hockey has actually won more regular season games than we have. And so there are plenty of times where the home team wins. But if all you do is rely on a winning game means people are happy and a losing game means they're unhappy, then you're too episodic because you're, still, you're always going to lose some. You don't win every single game. So you have to go beyond just the your identity is whether the final score shows that you were more successful than the other team. That can't be the only story. How much of your effort is devoted to this notion of developing this broader sense of participation and people feeling that they're part of your community? 
I think virtually everything we do is anchored around that. I, I'm not sure I could give you a percentage. For sure, it's more than half. Uh, it's one of the reasons that we invest significantly in a foundation as well as a nonprofit to give back into a, literally our physical community because the community is both digital and online. It's in other places that we don't touch every day, but it's, as I said, physically anchored here. And whether it's you know helping build a program, a playground for a school that might not have one, whether it's uh, using our players to help teach math or education in ways that haven't done before, uh, whether it's simply just granting money to organizations that need it more than we do, all those help build community in ways that you wouldn't expect as well. To what extent does this permeate the various departments inside your organization, this attitude? Yeah, it's it's hard to describe unless you were in our building and see it, but but being authentic and in the community and being a shark is our identity. It, it doesn't it permeate again, somehow suggests that it's a foreign body that came in, which is, goes back to that comment of, you know, it's our identity. It's who we are. We actually describe ourselves internally as Team Teal. Team is our, uh, Teal is our color. Um, I think we were the first team in professional sports to use Teal at the time that we actually launched our iconic uh, jersey and logo back in 1993 or rather 91. I uh, still think actually uh, voted the best jersey of all time in the National Hockey League. So because that's our identity, we talk about it all the time. We actually uh, have a series of pioneering principles. Remember I said pioneering is a big part of uh, that we talk about it that include these things in our ethos. We actually have monthly all hands meetings, which we call Team Teal meetings, in which people that go above and beyond to show these values get awards every month. And the awards do not come from management. They come from their peers. They're nominated. They're voted on by their peers as well. So it's not, again, permeation sounds somehow foreign. It's who we are. It's our identity. Would it be fair to call this the digital transformation of sports? Or is that just the wrong context and phrasing? You know, I, I tweeted out right before the show that I promised not to use any buzzwords. And if I say digital transformation, it's going to sound a little bit like a buzzword. So you can call it that, but I'm not going to call it. All that. right. What, uh, what, 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 what will you call it? For sure, sports and entertainment is going through a disruption. Part of that disruption is digital. And so, yes, sports and entertainment is fundamentally transforming, but it's not just digital. There's a cultural transformation. There's a sport, et cetera. It's going from putting on games to, as I said, to engaging with fans on an hourly minute basis. Um, you know, to say digital, yes, that's part of it. I mean, I'll give you a simple example. Uh, last year, we, you know, bobbleheads, right? I'm shaking my head like a bobble. We do some of the best bobbleheads in sports. Uh, I think last season we did 12 or 14 of them. We win some awards from those last. Last year we ran an experiment, which was cool. We actually created the first virtual reality, sorry, augmented reality bobblehead. So on the bobblehead itself, there was a QR code. Turns out Logan Couture, one of the best forwards in hockey on our team. And that QR code, you could actually use our digital app to get some background information, essentially a day in the life of Logan, which would explain some of the features of the bobblehead and go sort of beyond. And therefore, you could self-identify a little bit more with this professional athlete. That augmented reality is now something that we want to use on lots of different situations. I mentioned digital ticketing. Um, we actually are seeing in Silicon Valley a phenomenon, and I think some other teams are seeing it as well, of late arriving fan. 
what that means is it's getting harder and harder to get to the venue because of, frankly, traffic. And so uh, it, where it used to be that 70 or even 80% of fans would be here by puck drop, the opening of now, on some nights it's as little as 60%. And they show up, but they show up during the first period. Well, we want to give them incentives to come earlier, maybe eat in the building rather than go home to eat or go to restaurants downtown. And so again, we put beacons into the building. We tried out using our digital app an incentive that we push for them. If you're in the building, let's say 30 minutes early before puck drop, you might get $10 off or 10% off in food in a particular stand or maybe merchandise anywhere in the building. All these things are digital and therefore might make you want to say, yes, the digital transformation of sports is happening, but it's not just digital. It is the cultural transformation to program around fan needs as opposed to program around the operational needs. I mean, I guess if you really, really wanted to say it was going to be digital, then I should be talking about, you know, robot servers and maybe even robot athletes one day. But that seems to be a little bit too far-fetched. Well, it seems the key point here is you're using every means at your disposal to support that mission, which in your case is the building of engagement, participation, and community. Some of those are technology and some of those are how you run the business. Well said. In many cases, it's simple business processes rather than technology. What advice do you have for companies that want to replicate this kind of sense of community? So, you know, um, <laughs> community is kind of like culture. You can't just declare it to be so and hope it happens. Uh, community is about authentically changing what you do and living it every single day. Uh, and most community is anchored by people not employed by the brand that want to create a community. For sure, as a brand, as a organization, I can set up the community. For sure, I can provide incentives to the community, but the community has to self-police, the community has to have its own evangelists, the community has to be almost self-regulated. It has to be something that you feel like you don't control, but you participate in. One of the things I see, again, by community, I don't necessarily just mean a message board on steroid. I mean, literally, a community. Stuff is going to happen. The community members are going to say things that make you uncomfortable. And how you react in those moments of uncomfortness tells you a lot about whether you're community-minded as well. I remember a conversation I had with an executive in a former life where I said, well, we should scrape conversations off the social web, not just in our managed community, but it happened and surface them on our website, our .com. And this other senior executive said to them, said to me, well, what happens if they say something extraordinarily negative about us? You know, isn't that going to be bad? And my answer, which I think uh, makes, is a different way of thinking about it, is what happens if people are saying something negative about us and we don't know? Knowing is much more powerful because you can interact, figure out what the root cause is, et cetera. So if you want to engage authentically and build a real community, you got to have a little bit of tough skin. You've got to be willing to be open-minded. You're willing to say, I want to be the best I can be. And to be the best I can be, I've got to get negative feedback and positive feedback. It's not just about praise. Uh, we have a question from Twitter, an interesting question from Steve Massey. Going back to uh, some things you were talking about earlier, how do you reconcile the revenue driving, uh, reconcile the revenue that comes from non revenue driving fans, even though you believe non-revenue driving fans are valuable 
to your brand? Basically, how do you deal with these fans who are not driving revenue? I mean, it costs you money to support them. There's two complementary answers to that. The first answer is to resist the temptation to immediately say, how do we turn a fan into revenue? If you resist that temptation, then lots of other good things happen. We've actually done some informal studies. I will say the science behind this is not as strong, which suggests the more fans that you have, the higher the revenue you are, you'll get because second order effects will happen. Even if they buy from somebody else, even if they show their pride, you're more likely to sell out a game. The tickets on the secondary market increase in price as opposed to decrease in price. Uh, you get more word of mouth, et cetera. So the second order effects happen, but you have to believe in the value of fandom. Yes, it's an investment, but investments are typically long-term things and not every investment in long-term can be done ROI. As a overly simplistic answer, which if this fan uh, lives locally, if you invest in fans, then maybe someone will take up the sport of the ice skating or curling or something else. And if they do that, they may want to try out and they may show up at one of our practice facilities. So they may never buy a ticket to a game, but we might actually still one day make money off of them. Or maybe they'll tell somebody else who then will go to a game because they'll want to try it out as well. So you have to believe in the power of word of mouth, which we believe fundamentally. You know, I, as I hear you talking, it comes across to me, or I, it comes to mind that you're really talking about invest in the community and the revenue will follow either directly or through those second order effects that you were just describing. Well said. I might borrow that from you, Michael. Hey, my phrases are yours to own. Uh, I, by the way, you have that on video, so I'm going to borrow all your phrases. <laughs> okay. Um, we have another question from Twitter. What about millennials? Are they doing things differently? Do you, how do you, how do you think about millennials? No, I, I don't know why millennial bashing is a sport. For sure, every generation, at least that I've lived through, likes things somehow different than the previous generation. Um, so maybe that's the question is, what has changed in recent years? Um, and I will say a couple things have changed, but it's not just limited to millennials. I think it's changed almost across the board. First of all, um, by and large, sports is seeing less and less fans signing up for what would be full season tickets. Um, we're not just seeing it in the Sharks. They're not just seeing it in hockey. It's happening across sports, particularly sports with long seasons. We have, you know, 40-some home games, 82 games uh, across the entire season. Basketball has about the same. Baseball has even more. Football, American football has a few less games, of course. And because of shorter attention spans, of course, as we all get more busier, distraction, the competition for other entertainment, as I mentioned earlier, it's harder and harder for a fan to go for to 40 games. And so actually, I don't mind this trend because it means that roughly half our building is going to be season ticket holders. But what that, that's turned into a rise of what I call partial plans. Half season plans, for example, have become very popular in recent years. I think it's the single highest growth part of our business right now in terms of percentage. Uh, we have something we call a shark pack. Uh, which is a partial 11 game plan as well, which is essentially a quarter season if you do the math. So the movement from always doing season ticket holders and then go all the way down to individual games is sort of settling in the middle, which is partial plans. So that's, that's a phenomenon that's happening as well. Uh, another phenomenon is the ride of foodism, I guess, if that's a word. Maybe I'll invent that on the fly. If you go back a decade, most of the food that you could buy in a ballpark or an arena or an outdoor stadium 
was limited to the simple staples, the obviously the beer, the hot dog, the hamburger. Now, if you go to many stadiums, particularly ours, there are all kinds of different foods there. We spent the summer revamping our menu again. Uh, the fan reaction has been phenomenal in the preseason games and some of the concerts we put on. We invited a lot of local specialty foods, for example, Nick Degree, Conjo Burger, Scott Seafood. I don't want to give too much shout outs to all of them. We invested heavily in our own food as well. Uh, one of the things that's selling phenomenally is we have our own brand of cookie dough called Jane Doe, which is a nice little pun on that as well. There's a lot of specialty brews now, so it's not just the national brewers, but the microbrewers that are in the building as well. So food as a destination is again a big part. And then finally, music. Actually, one of the amusing things that happens to me often is if you're a loyal fan, I love you. You've been in our building for 25 years. By and large, you like more traditional rock and roll. If you're a younger fan and you're in our building, you want a little more hip hop and sort of modern. And uh, no matter which I play, somebody else complains. So can't win. Jonathan, as we finish up, we have just a couple of minutes left. We have a, a really interesting comment from Shelley Lucas on Twitter who says, rather than forcing customers into buckets based on who we are, we, meaning you, this is your comment, look at who our customers are first. And I'll just ask you for advice as we finish up for, for companies, whether sports or non-sports, how to look at customers that way rather than just as dollar signs. Yeah, so hi, Shelley. Um, I think part of the issue, and for those of you who know me, know I'm a longtime marketer, was a CMO. Part of the issue is the language we use. Uh, I don't think I realized for a long period of time, phrases like target the customer, just give us a mental model of, we've got some payload, we've got some things and we're just trying to find who it is out there that wants what we have to offer. And, and switching the mental model of you know, the outside in that I've mentioned a couple of times of starting from who's out there that might want to engage with us and what do they need? And can we service their needs? That mental model of, which is what I think software as a service was intended us to think more about, is a huge mental shift that helps marketers a lot. Uh, and sometimes what they need isn't a commercial transaction. Sometimes what they need is better education. Sometimes what they need is a connection to somebody else that has a similar problem that's willing to hear them out. Sometimes what they need is just a repeating of something you've done before. That listening, you know, the old proverb, two ears, one mouth kind of stuff of, now a lot of people have started down this direction with customer journeys, et cetera. My worry when I did this in the past and what a lot of my colleagues did in the past is the customer journey always had the outcome of how do we sell them something? And so if I give you a very tactical advice is build customer journeys that don't always have the outcome of having them buy something. You're, you're sort of stabbing at the heart of how many marketers think here, Jonathan. I know, I know. I've always been a contrarian. Sorry about that. There are marketers around the country right now, around the world, who are just kind of dying inside because you're... And so no, they're not. I think we all know this. I mean, I, by the way, another lesson I've sort of relearned as a marketer is... We've been talking about for almost a decade that B2B and B2C are coming together. And look, I, my last job was clearly as a B2B marketer that was trying to use B2C techniques. Now I'm in a B2C business realizing that I need to use B2B techniques because more and more what's happening is companies are buying blocks of tickets for their employees or ways to host their employers, et cetera. It's not just the season ticket holder. It's not just the individual, it's corporate stuff as well. So all the classic yarns of breaking down that, they're all coming true. I'm living them in my own life which is one of the reasons I love the job. 
Okay, well, unfortunately, well, it's an interesting job, and unfortunately, we're out of time. So I want to say a huge thank you to Jonathan Becker, who is the president of Shark Sports and Entertainment, which is the parent organization of the San Jose Sharks, as well as the SAP Arena and other organizations, venues, and uh, in the San Jose area. And uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Everybody, thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube. Go to cxotalk.com and you can check out lots and lots of other great videos. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye.